Okay, shall we continue on together? That would be great. Hope you're doing well this morning. If I've not met you before, my name's Philip. I lead the church here. It's great to see you. If you are new or it's one of your first times, it's great to see you. How many times you've been here? Hope you're having a fantastic morning with us. Uh, we've been doing or following a series of talks. We call it The Trial. And that's because we're looking at the book of Romans, and Paul, who's the author of the book of Romans, what he's doing is explaining different angles of the gospel, the Christian gospel, through, as I say, like a legal lens, a legal framework. And that's why we've called this series The Trial, and this is the eighth in that series. Um, Our kids are also following the same series, both in in King's Kids, the 3 to 11s, and also in Ignite, the 11 to 16. They're following the same series, obviously in kind of age-appropriate ways, but I'm told, and I'm Continually praying, really, that would be a really beneficial thing for families, for parents to be kind of explaining and talking through the same issues and angles of the gospel and so on with your kids. I hope that is serving you as parents really well. I'm excited by that. Most times in this series, I tend to start the talk, if you like, with a court story to kind of tee up the angle of the gospel through that legal lens that we're looking. And this morning, I guess, is less of a court story and a bit more of a legal narrative, I suppose, a historical narrative. And if you know your history, you'll know that in 1789, the American Constitution was signed. It's a pretty formative document, to put it mildly. And that, of course, provided the legal framework for governing the country. But remarkably, at least for our eyes and ears today, what was specified in that Constitution was that slavery would be legally mandated, legally authorized. It was in the Constitution. Slavery being racist and abusive was made legal in the Constitution in 1789. And then if you fast forward to the 1860s, you get a remarkable five-year period in which some very significant amendments to that Constitution get made. The 13th Amendment was made in 1865 as a fundamental transformation in the future of America as slaves were freed, known as the emancipation of slavery in 1865. The 14th Amendment was made three years later when those recently freed slaves were now made American citizens. And then one more amendment, the 15th, was made in 1870 as those recently freed slaves were also given the right to vote. And so over the course of five years, what happened was you had slaves being given their freedom from their masters, then freedom to belong, I guess, to the nation, and then, of course, freedom to vote. So in just five years, those that had no rights, no place, and no vote were given a new significance, a new identity, a new security. And of course, many former slaves opted to seize the uncertainties of freedom with, with both hands. And very gradually, very gradually, over the decades, more and more African Americans found, for example, paid employment, good, good employers, increasing prospects and opportunities. But interestingly, a number of slaves, and not many, but some, a minority, actually decided to remain or return to their original slave owners, voluntarily submitting themselves to their previous life. So ingrained were their feelings of inferiority, so used were they to obeying their old masters, so daunting were the uncertainties of freedom, that some preferred to hold on to their old life to hold on to the identity that they knew. And when I was just thinking through this this week and reading a few documents that kind of testified to what I've just been saying, you can't help but thinking, why? Why would you go back to your old master? Why would you return to a master who had enslaved you? And of course, it's hard for us, isn't it, to put our 
to put our minds in what it must have been like to be a recently freed slave in the 1860s and 70s and 80s and so on. But I guess generally people return in all kinds of different parts of life. People do return metaphorically to old masters for all kinds of reasons. Even though they know it might not be for their good, they do find themselves returning to old masters. I think for three reasons. One, because of identity, what we know we are. Two, because it gives us significance. We know the place that we were, so we return to that place. And three, maybe it's security, because that's, those are the parameters of life that we've known. And I guess for some slaves, those were the three reasons as to why they found themselves returning. That's who I was, that's who I am. Anything outside of these parameters that I've known is actually too daunting to contemplate. And one of the things that we said last week, that if you like, the defining characteristic of a Christian in some ways, the defining feature of what it means to be a Christian in some ways is to have a brand new identity, to have been released from one identity and to have been given a brand new one, which begs the question, what do you do with it? What do you do with this newfound freedom as a Christian? And Paul, as we're about to read in this next part of Romans, is basically saying We were former slaves. We used to be slaves to an old master. We've been given our freedom. What are we going to do with it? That's effectively the concept that he's opening up. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, what do you mean, do with my new freedom? I I was never a slave, Philip. It doesn't really ring true. I I I don't consider myself to have been a slave before I was a Christian. And if you are kind of just exploring the Christian faith or you're skeptical about the Christian faith, you might well say, and I'm certainly not a slave now. It doesn't ring true to my uh, context. And Paul, as we're about to see, seems to think that we are. He seems to think that we are. Now, we need to remember that Paul is speaking to a first century Roman Empire audience, and we'll look at some of the specific cultural differences later on. But for now... Even though some of this feels a bit jarring, maybe, let's just try and let the text speak to us, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So we're in Romans 6, and we're going to go from verse 15, and it'll also appear on the screen behind me. So Paul says, what then? <laughs> are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So interesting language that Paul is choosing. And for us, the language of slavery is difficult, not least given the context that I was just referring to. 
It's a difficult context to get into. And we're going to get into the nature of the context in which Paul is talking. But his primary point is that before, if you like, crossing the line of faith in Jesus and in his accomplished work on the cross and resurrection, before that moment happened, he's saying, we were effectively slaves. And now we've been set free. And next week, in chapter 7, he'll tell us exactly how that happened. But thinking back to last week, we said that because faith in Christ fully identifies us with Jesus to his death and resurrection, that means that we didn't, as I was praying before, we didn't just, if you like, have our old self uh, crucified with him and our sin buried with him. We were also raised to a new life. Faith in Jesus means we're fully identified with all that he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection. So if we're raised to a new life, the question is the same. What do we do with our freedom? What do we do with our freedom? I would suggest to you there are broadly three options. I'm going to paint three broad brushstrokes of the options that lie in front of us when we're faced with this new freedom, even though some of the language of slavery and so on we need to unpack a little bit later on. So first option when it comes to what do I do with my freedom, which I guess is what those genuine slaves in the 19th century were faced with, and Paul would say that's what the Christian is faced with. What do we do with our new freedom? On the one hand... One kind of mindset is, well, I'm free, so I can do whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever I want. And that's kind of the question that Paul kicks off this passage with, kind of posing, isn't it? Surely I'm free to do whatever I want. And this is hardly a radical, deep philosophical concept. It's one that modern Western 21st century society is pretty familiar with, that freedom equals the freedom to do whatever I want. That's kind of ingrained in our society. And I guess we can live that out in a kind of wild public way in some ways, kind of sex, drugs and rock and roll. We can live it out in that dramatic kind of way. I was just reading an article by Pete Doherty this week, who's the former, uh, former lead singer of the Libertines. And, uh, and he was just talking in very honest terms about what it means to do whatever I want. And man, that guy has done whatever he wants, if you know anything of his background. And he's like, because of my talent, because of my wealth, because of my popularity, I can do whatever I want. And he lives it out in a dramatic kind of way. But I would say for most of us, it's probably a more subtle, it's probably a more subtle thing than if you watch the film Invictus that portrays the life of Nelson Mandela. And, that, and one part in the film, he's, it harks back to his time on Robin Island, if you've seen that part of the film. And there's a, there's a poem called Invictus that was incredibly uh, dear to him during his time in jail. And I think for many of us, the idea of I'm free to do what I want can kind of more subtly be summed up in those last two lines. I think for many of us, our heart just whispers very quietly, like that poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a very famous poem. It's a wonderful poem. But those two lines, I think, is probably a more subtle description of what it means to be free to do what I want. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But I want to suggest to you that being free to do whatever we want really means that actually we choose which master to give ourselves to. The freedom to do whatever we want really means, I would suggest, that we are free to put ourselves under the mastery of different things. I don't think it's as simple as simple freedom to do as we wish, when we wish, and nothing and no one can have a say. I would suggest that all of us, if we live this way, will put ourselves under the mastery of something. Often good things. Often good things. We're all going to live for something, Paul, I think, is hinting. Career, family, achievement, 
personal independence, people being dependent upon you, physical attractiveness, position or serving in church. None of these are bad things. They're good things. And I think this is partly what Paul wants to get at as he explores what it is to be mastered by something else other than God's. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 12, which is slightly before our passage this morning, if you just kind of rewind to verse 12, Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Notice he uses the word reign. So he's assuming that that sin is like a master. It can master us, control us. And then he says this word passions at the end which in some Bible translations can be translated as lusts of the flesh. And if you take these various words, if you kind of take them at face value, the idea of mortal body and and passions and lusts of the flesh, and the next few verses talk about not presenting our members to unrighteousness and so on and so forth, mortal body, lusts of the flesh, members for this and that, let's be honest, we just think it's about sex. That's what I kind of used to, I think, read it as. It's a kind of prohibition to, to sexual impurity. But I think Paul actually is getting at something much more subtle than just a prohibition towards sexual impurity. And the reason I think this is because that the word passions, if you look at the original Greek word that has been translated as passions, actually it would be better translated as over-passions or over-desires. The Greek word talks about over-desiring something, being overly passionate for something, or an inordinate desire. And so Paul's being far more subtle than just saying, and don't do that, the whole sex thing, you know it's bad, use it properly. He's being far more subtle than that. He's saying, actually, sometimes what can reign in you is an over-desire for good things. It's an over-desire for good things, an inordinate desire. And when you inordinately desire or overly desire something that's good, then it can start to control, then it can start to have mastery over you. Let me give you three tests. Let me give you three quick little tests that I think help us to see whether any of these good things or other good things have begun to get a degree of mastery over us. Because I'm suggesting that all of us will give ourselves to something. So, test one is anger. So, if a good thing in your life is, is threatened, we'll feel frustrated. We might feel angry. If an ultimate thing is threatened, then we can feel fury can feel out of control anger. If it's an ultimate thing, if it's something that we overly desire, if it's begun to get a degree of mastery over us and that's threatened, anger can become fury. Or another one, fear. So if something good is threatened, then we're worried, quite reasonably and rightly. If something ultimate is threatened, we can be paralyzed by fear. We don't know what to do. You see the difference between a good thing and something that we desire inordinately or overly. One more for you. Sadness. Of course, we feel grief when we lose something good. It can take a long time, weeks, months to to overcome that. If we lose something that is ultimate, something that we inordinately desire, we don't want to live. What's the meaning of life? We can want to throw in the towel. And What I'm suggesting is that all of us can have something, a something, And by a something, I mean the main way we get significance or the main thing that gives us security. Or to put it a different way, the thing that makes you feel valuable or the thing that helps you deal with the the worries of life. Everyone has a something. 
something that gives us significance, something that gives us security. And that, Paul is saying, is a spiritual master. It will master you. It will control you. And so we can declare, like much of the world declares, I'm free to do whatever I like. But I'm suggesting that what we're really saying is we're just free to make a choice as to which spiritual master we give ourselves to, as to which spiritual master we're going to submit to, which thing we're going to over-desire. It's going to go from being a good thing to having an inordinate desire. So on the one hand, there's something in us that says, I'm free to do whatever I want. That can be a definition of how to use freedom. On the other hand, and you appreciate I'm painting broad brushstrokes here, and I think in reality there's bits of both of these in all of us. It certainly is in me. But on the other hand, freedom can be I'm free or I feel free when I'm good enough. I feel free when I'm good enough. It's a very different type of kind of personality trait to the I'm free to do whatever I want. And I think in reality, if you're like me, there's bits of both probably kind of lurking in there somewhere. And this type of person, I'm free when I'm good enough. We're the type of person where we value rules, probably. We value regulations. We, we value the recognition of achievement. We value clear parameters for how we should live. And our freedom comes from being good enough, knowing that we qualify, following the rules, and, and earning a degree of recognition, achievement, and validation, and so on. We like rules, parameters, because it gives us recognition, and it tells us that we qualify. And I think if you look in the, in the Bible, you see something of this type of expression of freedom trying to work itself out. You see it with the Israelites through the Old Testament as they went go about obeying the Jewish law, the law that God had given. And of course, the, the law was intended, wasn't it, to reveal both the human heart and the heart of God. That was the intention of the law. It was intended to point the human heart towards the heart of God. That was the intention of it. But really, for some, through the Old Testament, it becomes a bit like a God in itself, a bit like a, a spiritual master, something that is an end in itself. The law was perfect, but just striving to obey it as a goal in and of itself was exhausting. It's exhausting to try and live for obedience to the law, to try and live to earn approval, to be good enough. Man, I've lived like that, and I can tell you it's exhausting. And if you track through the Old Testament, you can see when people start living for the law in and of itself, regardless of the heart of God, simply out of desiring approval, recognition to be good enough, you never get there and it's exhausting. And by Jesus' day, you have groups, don't you, like the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. And they, if, if we're honest, they take great pride in being able to obey the law and all of the additional customs that they have tacked on over the years. And for them, they wouldn't have expressed it like this, but I'm suggesting that it's true. Their freedom, their freedom didn't come from doing whatever they like. Quite the opposite. Their freedom came from being good enough. Their freedom came from being able to observe the rules and the regulations excellently. But they weren't free. They weren't free people. You read the descriptions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They don't exude freedom, do they? They had effectively become enslaved to a different spiritual master trying to obey the rules to be good enough. And what's more, they used it to enslave others. They used it really to enslave others, that same mindset. Let me tell you a story to try and help show you what I mean. Um, and it's a slightly frivolous story, but I'm hoping it will help us to understand what I'm, what I'm getting at. A number of years ago when I was a student, I uh, took a summer job to work at Wimbledon down the road at the tennis championships. 
And uh, a couple of my mates got jobs as court coverers, but I ended up uh, with a different job. I ended up with a job in that uh, exclusive, prestigious eatery known as Pizza, Pizza, Pizza um, <laughs> at Wimbledon, which was grim. Oh, man, it was the worst job ever. I hated it, working in this pizza place, serving pizza all day. It was like 7 in the morning until about 9 in the evening. I really hated it. And what's more, I was always getting in trouble. I had a really mean boss. Really mean boss. Now, I wasn't, admittedly, I wasn't that good at the job, but he was pretty mean. I was always getting in trouble for putting on the wrong toppings, for putting on too much toppings, for eating the toppings. I was always getting in trouble for being either too grouchy to the customers or, or too friendly to the customers. Admittedly, I did once give Kylie Minogue a free pizza, but that's a whole different story. I was always getting in trouble. I couldn't do anything right with this guy. And the pay was terrible. It was even worse than being a court coverer. In summary, I worked pretty hard for a job that I hated and a boss that hated me, bluntly speaking. I worked pretty hard for a job I hated and a boss that hated me. I was never good enough. Okay, I gave him some reasonable evidence to put me in trouble, but I was never going to be good enough for what he wanted, this guy. He was really hard work. And the point I'm making, in a slightly trivial way, is that we can all live a little bit like this. And we can do this as a Christian, can't we? We can live a little bit as though God is a God whom we'll never be able to fully please. And rather than me and God, who through Christ has given us his full love and approval every single day, we can live a, little, live a little bit like our mission is not to enjoy him and to enjoy his approval and love, but to kind of top up his approval and to earn the rest. And that he can sometimes feel to us like a slightly harsh taskmaster who's freed us from guilt and sin, but is waiting for us to maybe top up the rest of his approval for us. So let's just take a pause for a second and just try and apply these two admittedly broad brushstroke caricatures to ourselves, to our own hearts. And I suggested that if you're like me, you might feel there's a little bit of both occasionally in your own hearts. So going back to the first type of person, is there something for you that is a good thing? You're probably not Pete Doherty and just lavishly giving yourself the sex, drugs and whatever you want. Might be. But is there something for you that it's a good thing but if you're honest, it's become an ultimate thing. And you know that because it's really the thing that gives you significance or security. And you know it even more because there's three little tests about anger, sadness, and fear kind of prompted it a bit in your heart. If a good thing is threatened and it prompts a sense of being out of control, a sense of being hopeless, a sense of being furious, has it become an, an ultimate thing? Has it become the primary thing that gives you significance or security? If it has, it's a spiritual master. Or, on the other kind of side, is it for you that actually, even after hearing week after week after week, these last eight weeks, that the love and the approval of God for you is guaranteed because you are fully identified with Christ. And so because you die with him, were buried with him, and were raised with him, and the love that the Father feels for the Son is fully yours because you're identified with Christ and it's yours every single day, do you still feel like you kind of have to top up the approval tank? You know that the, the debt is clear. You know that you're back to zero and guilt and sin is dealt with. But in terms of a full tank of approval, the righteousness of Christ credited to you, sometimes you, if you're a bit like me, you can feel as though we need to maintain that or top it up. I remember my example of taking ourselves off to sit on the naughty step. When we get it wrong, 
We don't come straight to a God who has full approval for us. We take ourselves off for a little bit, dust ourselves down, clean ourselves off, slightly punish ourselves, top up the approval rating again, and then we come back to God. As I say, if you're anything like me, probably both those types of broad brushstroke personalities can maybe be in there somewhere. So the third solution, if you like, or the third option to how we use our freedom is, I would suggest, the freedom to choose the mastery of God. I would suggest that true freedom is the freedom to choose the mastery of God, to submit ourselves to the mastery of God. Because Paul says we're all going to be a slave to something. We're all going to give ourselves to something to control us, to master us. And he's saying that real freedom, one in Christ, is the freedom to be able to give ourselves to God's mastery. Now, at this point, let's take a little sidebar and just confront the issue of slavery briefly. Because that's a hard thing, isn't it? To try and consider ourselves to, be, to have been given the freedom to become a slave to God. Isn't that the kind of terminology that the, some parts of the church of the centuries have used to literally enslave people? So let's just kind of take that, tackle that issue of slavery head on. Because we think of slavery as being a really, really negative thing. And not unreasonably when we hark back to the stories I told at the beginning. But let's be even more blunt. Slavery is not just something that took place hundreds of years ago. As wonderful as William Wilberforce's great uh, abolition of slavery act in 1815 was, it didn't fully abolish slavery, did it? Slavery is a very modern problem. Let's just spend a brief, very brief few seconds or few minutes just reflecting on that because we need to understand what ancient slavery was that Paul's referring to and how it's different from modern slavery. Modern slavery, 27 million people apparently in slavery today across the world. 27 million. Most of those will be kidnapped or, or tricked or sold by family members, many into the sex industry. Get this, the average price for a slave today November 2015, a whole real human being is 55 pounds. That's the average price for a person to be bought on the modern slave market. Bring it even closer to home, in London. In London, the average price to purchase a child into the sex industry is 16,000 pounds. In our city, in 2015. And then we hear Paul saying, become a slave of God? <laughs> it, it jars a little bit. But I would suggest that modern slavery is very, very different to the ancient world of slavery that Paul is uh, using as his metaphor. Let's be blunt. Modern slavery is highly racist, demeaning, abusive, and immoral, utterly. Often it revolves around kidnapping, sex trafficking. It's highly lucrative for those who sell the slaves and subjects the victims to abject poverty from which they can never break free. And this is not a sermon about tackling the injustice of slavery. But we did talk a few weeks ago about how Jesus is the judge who will bring all things to justice and who equips us to tackle injustice with both a humble and confident heart. But it's not this sermon. In the ancient world, slavery was very different. Very different. It wasn't a matter of social status. So slaves in Paul's world could have a higher social status than free people. They might well be, uh, have, they have more responsibility Slaves could manage big teams of people. They had high responsibility in the workplace. Often they were more educated. Obviously they were paid a pittance, but because they had no overheads as such, slaves were better able to save than many free people were. 
They often were able to pursue different employment or further education. Slaves sometimes owned slaves themselves. And it was unusual for it to be in slavery for much more than 10 to 15 years or past the age of 30. That was quite unusual. Now, I'm not looking at it through rose-tinted spectacles. It was not necessarily pleasant. But my point is it was very, very different. Probably more akin to the modern relationship between a worker and his boss. And so when Paul's readers in the first century hear this language of slavery, they're not hearing what we're hearing. They're not hearing the language of racism and abuse and victims. They're not, it's not what they're hearing. They're hearing the language of choice. They're hearing they have now the choice to give themselves to a good master, a better master. That's what they're hearing. And it's different, isn't it, to what we can hear. So I would suggest that real freedom is the freedom to choose. I'd even go further than that and say real freedom is the freedom to choose who or what to be mastered by. Bearing in mind that we will be mastered by something. Real freedom is the freedom to choose. So this week, a film called The Suffragettes came out, didn't it? You might have seen that or clocked it. It came out this week. It tells the story of the suffragette movement at the beginning of the 20th century. And those amazing women who campaigned so tirelessly and fearlessly, what were they campaigning for? They were campaigning for the right to vote. The right to have an equal say in the future of the country. They weren't campaigning for anarchy. They weren't campaigning for, for no masters. For them, freedom meant the freedom to have a choice. The freedom to be able to have your say. For them, freedom was the freedom to have a choice. Who's going to be in the next government? That's what they wanted to have a say in. Who's going to be my next master? I want to be able to choose the next master of Great Britain. That's what drove them for the years and years of protests. Or maybe more modern in more modern times, think about 2011 and the Arab Spring. All those, that movement that just swept across the Middle East. What was driving most of all those protests and people risking life and limb to protest in various parts of the Middle East? They weren't desiring anarchy. They weren't saying, we want no masters at all. We genuinely want you to be totally free to do whatever. They were saying, we want good masters. We want to be able to have a choice about who our masters are. We want masters that will cause us to flourish and be protected and prosper. We want to have a say in who our masters are. That was behind the Arab Spring. True freedom is the freedom to choose a good master. So if you go back to my Wimbledon story, which I say is slightly trivial, but it, it, I think it helps us to understand the point. Remember my two mates I referred to who got jobs as court coverers? Well, a year after my uh, pizza, pizza, pizza experience, you can imagine there was no way that I was going back to work there. Absolutely no way. But I did need to get a job, and I did quite want to work at Wimbledon, so I thought I'll do what they do. I will get a job as a court coverer, because there's no way I'm going back to pizza, pizza, pizza. So surely enough, I got myself a job as a court coverer. You know the guys you see on TV, you run around with the covers on the courts? Uh, I was one of those. And so on day one, I, I turned up, nice green shorts and polo shirts, nice new trainers, Went across to court 16. That was my court that I was going to be on for the two weeks. I was a court coverer. And on the way, I walked past Pizza, Pizza, Pizza. You can imagine, there was no way I was going to be returning to their employment. Though I imagine they probably needed people. And I even saw my old boss lurking in the, in the, in the, in the background. But there was no way I was going to return there. I had a new job. I had a new master. Court coverer. And man, when the sun was out, court covering was the job, I tell you. He just lounged around all day getting a tan in your shorts and t-shirt. 
trying to chat to tennis players. It was such a much better job. Not often at times when it rained, it was not such an easy job hauling the covers on and off. But obedience, I guess, never is always easy. But never once did I consider going back to Pizza Pizza Pizza. The fruit of working for Pizza 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 was tiredness, exhaustion, humiliation, and frankly, a spotty face. The fruit, the fruit of working as a court coverer was a load of new mates, nice pair of shorts, and a tan. There was no way I was going to change masters. I had a new one. You might have heard of a man called St. Augustine, who was kind of, I guess, one of the fathers of Christianity, again, in ancient times. And uh, before he became a Christian, man, he lived a, he lived a Pete Doherty lifestyle. He was shameless about the kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the, of the, of the ancient times. He became a Christian around about 30, I think. And sex was a massive part of his life. He had, he had a number of different affairs before he became a Christian. And one day, uh, one of the women whom he had an affair with came across him. And she was still really attracted to him, tried to draw him back in to another fling, another affair. And he was very polite. He said, it's okay, I'm fine for now, thank you. And made his way, made his way onwards. And she said, or she thought, oh, he obviously hasn't recognized me. Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he turned round and said, but it is not I. He's a new person with a new master and a new identity. He's saying, I'm not that person anymore that needs to manipulate women to make myself feel better. I'm not going to enslave myself to that thing anymore. I'm a new person. I'm a new I. I have a new master. And so just as we come into the home straight, I want to help us, I guess, apply that again to our own lives. And I know, obviously, I brought something during the worship, which is, I guess, part of what God's been saying in the week and, and through this, but... I did feel that he was saying that in the worship as he sang about resurrection. And I do continually want us as King's Church to value the resurrection, which might sound a fairly obvious thing for a Christian pastor to say. But it's the cross and the resurrection. That's the gospel. Baptized with Christ into his death. Buried our sin and us, buried with him in the tomb and risen to new life. Brand new life, resurrection life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us, the Bible tells us. And the gospel means we have a new life, a new identity. And we have the freedom now, rather than to give ourselves to spiritual masters who will never satisfy. Your work, however good it is, your family, however wonderful they are, they're never going to provide ultimate significance and security. If we give ourselves to the good things, they will just only enslave us. The resurrection tells us we have a new identity and we have the freedom to give ourselves fully to a good master. A master who came to serve us first, to bring us into his mastery, if you like. Your career is not going to serve you like that. It's not going to humble itself to serve you, good though it is. This is an extraordinary master that we have. So what does it mean to be a slave to God? Bearing in mind all of these contextual things. It means I have Christ's full approval that's been purchased and won for me. It means actually total security is to be found in giving myself, giving myself wholly to him. Not to be enslaved even to the best things. Not to be enslaved by the need to prove myself or earn extra approval or to rid myself of any additional shame. 
That's where true security comes from. For the first time in my life, I've left the last bit of my notes completely blank. Because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to try and hear what God, I think, was saying to us. And I, I realized I've painted very broad kind of brushstrokes and made generalizations and so on. But I hope it's been helpful just to see what can be in our heart and what is the offer of the gospel. And I think what God is is beginning to shape in me and I hope to shape in us as a church is that the gospel is, so, is better news even than sin being dealt with, guilt and punishment being dealt with. It is the invitation to live life in its fullness. It's actually an invitation to know new life, resurrection life. Life as to how it was originally intended to be. And the great thing is, when you know new life, you can actually give yourself to all of those good things with even more passion and abandon and commitment because you know they're not ultimate things. That's real freedom. To give yourself to the work that God's called you to do and made you really good at, to give yourself fully to it, to cultivate as much money as you can for the business, for example. To be able to do that, knowing that it will never be an ultimate thing and only a good thing, that's freedom. If it's an ultimate thing and it's a guarantor of your security uh, and identity, then it's a controlling thing. So here's my question. I'm not going to talk about sin. Probably would have done a year ago. (laughs) I want to talk about what it is to live free. What has God made you good at? How has he wired you? What are you passionate about? And are those things good things and not inordinate, ultimate things? Because if they're good things, then you can give yourself fully to those things, knowing that you have an ultimate master with whom security and safety and identity is guaranteed. And to serve him, love him, follow him, proclaim him, demonstrate people to him, resemble him through all of those good things is part of the joy of being a Christian. He's made you like he's made you for a reason. Yeah, he's got work to do in you and I. Of course he has. It'll take a lifetime. And one day we'll be, be, we'll be perfected. That takes time. But in the meantime, there is a freedom of living as a Christian. And the freedom comes not from just doing whatever I want and not from trying really hard to earn approval and live by, by, by the rules. It comes from being fully identified with Christ, living in the peace that it is to know him as master, and to give ourselves to obeying him, knowing that those things glorify and honor him. As you can tell, leaving no notes sometimes leaves you waffly a little bit. <laughs> but I hope that's just beginning to, to land with us. It's not where I thought I would go, but I do think it's what God wants to say to us. And I hope it's been helpful to you. I wonder whether Daryl and the guys could come and join us. We, we share communion at the moment through this series each week. And if you're, a, if you're not a Christian, you should feel under no uh, pressure at all to take communion with us. But if you are a Christian, I hope doing it each week is serving you really well as a means of really reflecting upon the specific angle of the gospel that, if you like, is summed up in Jesus' death and resurrection. Because his broken body didn't stay broken. <laughs> came back to wholeness, to newness of life. So as we take communion, I want you to think about what's been said and try and respond specifically as you, shape, as you share communion, what does it mean to live free? What does it mean for you this week to give yourselves wholly 
Not to do whatever I want, because that just enslaves you. Not to try and earn in God's approval. What does it mean to give yourself wholly to the best possible master, the master that served us through having his body broken, his blood shed, and then rising to fullness of life and giving you and me fullness and newness of life? So the guys are here with communion. We're going to sing a couple of songs. We try and do this as informally as possible, even though it involves kind of processing down steps. So I hope you feel free to take it as and when suits you. You can stay in your seat. You can pray with the person next to you. You can enjoy worshipping. You can just talk to God. If you're here exploring or sceptical about Christianity, I hope you know how welcome you are. You really are welcome. And I'd encourage you to use these moments to think through what you've heard. Why are these people giving themselves to the mastery of God? Is he that good? Is he that safe? Is he that much to be depended upon? Take time to consider that. A stand. Lord God, we thank you that you have put a desire for freedom deep in the heart of every human being. We look through history and we see the yearning for freedom so much in humanity. Because you put it there, God. But because you put it there, you know how it's best expressed. And we believe that true freedom is to know what it is to give ourselves fully to you. To be, in the best possible sense, enslaved to you because that is for our best, for our good and for your glory. God, help us to know how to do that this week. Help us to know what it means to give our talents, our gifts, our skills, our passions fully to you. That you might be glorified that the freedom that comes from following you and knowing you might be demonstrated to all of those around us. Amen.